Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of We Too Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh Immigrants Shape Our Multiracial Future. The book is published by The New Press. The author is Deepa Iyer. I hope that you enjoy the interview that I did with Deepa today. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and I have the pleasure today to have on the line Deepa Iyer, who is the author of We Too Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh Immigrants Shape Our Multiracial Future. Deepa Iyer, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have read the book. As we've talked about earlier, this is a subject matter that I think a lot about and uh, had a real pleasure in reading your take. Mm. Before we, we get to your, your interesting new book, why don't you tell us just a little bit about uh, uh, where you are now and, and, and where you've been in the past? Sure. So I am a um, senior fellow currently at the Center for Social Inclusion, which is a national nonprofit organization that strives to eliminate structural racism and institutions and different arenas in our nation. And previously, for about 10 years, I ran an organization called SALT, South Asian Americans Leading Together, which is also a national nonprofit that was shaped in the weeks and months after the 9-11 attacks to address issues affecting South Asians living in the United States. And much of that experience really has uh, been formative in terms of the writing of the book that we are talking about today. Yeah, 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 yeah. and your background is just so very interesting and so related to the, your approach that you take here. Uh, you, you are an attorney by training, and you were at the Department of Justice in 2001. Uh, how did that year change the nature of the civil rights work that you did? Because you were deeply into these issues before September 11th, uh, what was the, what was your work like uh, prior to September? Prior to 2001, as you mentioned, that you know I had uh, I was a new lawyer. I was working at a different nonprofit organizations in DC that focus on Asian American communities around language rights and voting rights and the like. And in the Department of Justice, I was specifically working at the Civil Rights Division, litigating employment discrimination cases uh, for the most part. And I must say that, you know, it was really a watershed moment for me. And I think so many other people who came of age when 9-11 occurred. And uh, for me in particular, after um, really grappling with the confusion and the horror of what had occurred on that morning, on that Tuesday morning, there began, as I say in my book, a sort of double grieving as uh, we heard instances of profiling and harassment and assaults and later on murders of people who belong to the communities that I felt connected to and that I am part of. And so the civil rights work shifted quite a bit because it became really about a community that was immediately thrown into crisis, less about building and empowering and, you know, sort of the slow build of a civil rights 
understanding of what these communities were facing, but more after 9-11, a crisis approach, a reactionary approach um, due to the narratives and the policies and the actions that began to take shape and take place in the United States. Now, you worked on cases that were in many ways quite similar to the crimes that were committed in Wisconsin in 2012. For those that that don't know what happened there, I wonder if you could briefly describe uh, what exactly happened at the Sikh temple in Wisconsin. Sure. You know, I think just as a preface to that, a lot of people, I think, are familiar with the fact that there was a backlash against South Asian Arab Muslim Sikh Hindu immigrant communities and others after 9-11. But I think a lot of people believe that that backlash was actually frozen in time, that it was limited in time to perhaps the first year after the attack. And what I think that the attack at the Sikh Temple of Wisconsin shows us is that that's not true. That particular tragedy occurred in 2012, in August of 2012. And basically what occurred was that a white supremacist barged into this Gurdwara, which is a place of worship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, a couple of miles outside of Milwaukee, and terrorized the congregants who had been worshiping there that morning, Sunday morning. And in the course of the attack that he perpetrated, six people were killed and several others were wounded. One person still remains in a coma. And so that particular tragedy, which happened in 2012, reminded all of us in the community And I think the nation that these forms of hate violence are not actually going away, that they continue to exist in America and that there is a targeting in particular of South Asian Muslim Arab and Sikh communities. Much of your book is about the commonalities between these communities, but but maybe you can just describe a, a little bit more about the, who the subject is uh, of this work. You, and, and in doing so, I wonder maybe if you could just talk uh, about the cover of the book. I, this is one of the, the, the great covers. Um, and I've had more people comment and, and inquire on the subways in New York uh, about the book. Uh, and I think it's because of the cover. So maybe you could just describe the cover and, and also just tell us maybe who designed the cover. We should give credit where credit is due. And as a way just to talk about the the diversity of the varied communities that you're focused on in the book. Right. So the book itself is focused on South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh immigrants. And I focus on those communities in particular because I have more of a relationship and understanding of those communities given my own work. And while it is a work of nonfiction, it's not, you know, a memoir, it's not necessarily about me, but the book is a book that really combines a lot of storytelling Um, coming from community voices with policy recommendations and um, some data points. And so um, that's why I chose those communities. And you're absolutely right. Um, They are not necessarily one category, right? Although um, I would argue, and I argue this in the book, that after 9-11, these communities actually began to be seen and perceived as one. So, for example, um, the attacks, the backlash that we often see um, are really tar- targeted against Muslims, um, but anyone who is perceived to be Muslim. So that could be um, someone who seeks, that could be someone who is a brown person from Pakistan, um, right? So it, it really is sort of this entire community got racialized after 9-11. In terms of the cover of the book, thank you for, for pointing that out. And I agree with you. I also have been getting a lot of 
really positive feedback from the cover of the book. And I think it's because um, it portrays the faces of people that represent the real diversity of America, um, in particular, the communities that I'm talking about in the book. But I've noticed when people look at the book, especially young people will often say, oh, that looks like me or that looks like someone that I know or that's my cousin. Right. So I think there's some sense of um, uh, of connectedness. Uh, that people feel when they look at the book. And I think book cover, which was designed by the New Press, my publisher, um, and I think it also speaks to sort of the multiracial future, the inclusive democracy um, that the book also touches upon quite a bit, how our country is transforming uh, dramatically when it comes to demographics. And so the the book cover speaks to that as well. Yes, it's a a great cover, and I think it really does um, sell the book very well. Now, just to get, sort of get back to some of the content here, and the the, the type of animosity that that you describe uh, in Wisconsin, um, it happens in lots of different communities, and, and sometimes it's not quite so violent. Um, you know, sometimes it just fits into the the day to day politics of a community. Um, and in and in the um, interest of that, you you write about the situation in Tennessee. I wonder if you would tell us a little bit about the organizing in opposition to immigrants, especially Muslim immigrants in Tennessee, and also the response to that anti-immigrant organizing in Tennessee and elsewhere. Right. So, you know, in the book, I talk about how there are a couple of different trends that we can look at when we look at post 9-11 backlash. One is these forms of hate violence that we just talked about that happen in Wisconsin or acts of discrimination at the workplace or bullying of children in schools. And then a second piece is more organized activity. Um, and, and that is some, something that I focused on in terms of what happened in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I'll talk about that in just a second. And the third is um, policies, government policies and political rhetoric. So all of those three trends kind of have come together to create a climate of fear and suspicion in post 9-11 America. Um, but in particular, in, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, I wanted to focus on that community because it's a very, you know, small community, um, uh, about a half an hour outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And Nashville and the entire state of Tennessee is also really undergoing that dramatic demographic shift that I mentioned earlier, um, where you have immigrant and refugee communities really settling in Nashville and other parts of Tennessee. And in Murfreesboro, the Muslim community there wanted to build a mosque, which is something that you know many communities, faith communities do around the country. And they immediately started to face some virulent opposition um, that, you know, included acts of vandalism um, to the property itself, that also included um, a large number of people, mainly white residents of Murfreesboro, coming to a city commission hearing and, um, quote, testifying, unquote, about why they felt that this mosque should not be Constructed, And a lot of the commentary was, again, very much um, very Islamophobic. It was very xenophobic, um, sort of, you know, we don't want these people here. They're going to create a jihadist camp in our community. Um, they should not be welcomed. So that anti-immigrant language. And then also there was um, some collaboration that occurred with um, members and spokespersons of sort of the industry of Islamophobia, which is this cottage industry and the Center for American Progress has done a great report on um, how the how a small group of organizations and spokespersons over the last 10 years have really um, been able to build the funding um, necessary to create and foment 
a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment in different parts of the nation. And and that particular uh, group of people decided that Murfreesboro would be a breeding place to foment that sort of fear. Um, so all of that came together. And in addition, um, uh, conservative Tea Party members in the state legislature started to pass bills and introduce legislation that were also anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant. So that particular chapter in the book talks about how we really can't underestimate what happens when, you know, a lot of kind of conservative forces come together, anti-immigrant forces come together to push back against a small community that the only thing they were trying to do was to build a mosque so that they could go somewhere to pray and connect with their community. Now, a lot of your book is about uh, organizations and, and organizing itself and the array of organizations representing South Asians and others is, is really rapidly changing. And, and also what they do is changing. So I wonder if you can tell us about some, um, some examples of the dynamic ways that uh, organizations are, are representing South Asians and Arab, Muslim and Sikh immigrants in the country. So who stands out to you as, as, as really doing some bold work here? Yeah. And I think, again, there's been such a shift um, pre and post 9-11. So after 9-11, we have seen some changes in the landscape of organizations that serve and advocate on behalf of these communities. A few that I'll talk about very quickly. Um, in the South Asian community, I think that we're seeing some groups, and I think we need more of these groups that are doing some organizing and base building, both in South Asian and Arab communities. So a group in um, New York City called uh, DRUM, Daisy's Rising Up and Moving, um, organizes uh, low-income or working-class undocumented um, community members in order to advocate for change, um, such as the Community Safety Act, which is a piece of legislation that was passed in New York City. Another group is the um, Arab American Action Network in Chicago, um, which has been very active in terms of organizing in communities there and around the case of Rasmea Ode, a Palestinian American activist um, who has faced some significant charges against her from, uh, by the U.S. government. Um, and then there are organizations that are doing a lot of advocacy. So um, South Asian Americans Leading Together, where I um, used to work, uh, does a lot of reporting, um, pulling together reports on xenophobic rhetoric, advocating on behalf of our communities in terms of racial profiling legislation, Muslim advocates, um, the National Network of um, Arab American Organizations. So there are many of these groups. Um, at Sikh Coalition. There are many of them that do stand out. And I think that they're doing um, service provision, but they're also doing advocacy that's very progressive. And they're also doing organizing and base building, which I think needs to be done more of. Um, and I think the, the last piece I'll say is that I do think that there's a lot of uh, alliance building that's beginning to happen with our organizations and with other communities of color, which I think is absolutely critical in terms of um, building the sort of solidarity that we need to say. Now, tell, us, now, tell, us, tell us a little bit more about that piece of it, um, because we're, we're in the midst of a uh, very long but, but still uh, ongoing presidential campaign. Um, but at the same time, there are these active social movements going on that are that are growing. So I wonder if you can talk about some of the cross cutting issues that are tying the, the particular groups that you study in your book to some of the other uh, what seem to be complementary social movements that are going on at the same time. And 
How are they working together? Are they working together in, in the context of this election campaign? I'm not sure about the election campaign in particular. I think that that will remain to be seen. Um, I think that in, in generally speaking, there are two movements that I also reference in the book that I think are very complementary um, in, <clears throat> in terms of the organizing and the political power building um, that we see in Muslim Arab South Asian communities. And these are the movement for black lives and the movement that's being led by undocumented youth. And I talk in the book about how both of these movements have been um, ways for our own communities to learn from and also to participate and engage in. So, for example, with the movement for Black Lives, South Asian communities, Arab communities in particular, over the past year since Ferguson, have been talking about what it means to stand in solidarity. And that includes, for example, addressing anti-Black racism in our own communities, and it also includes uh, making some of the linkages between the the type of oppression that we see with police brutality targeting uh, black communities in particular and the war on terror, which includes sort of the surveillance state. So how do we make some of those links between our causes so that we can create a, a more informed base? Um, that is working towards policy changes. So that's just one example. Um, I do think from the election standpoint, thanks again to the movement for Black Lives, um, you know, I think the candidates are being pushed to actually speak on the issues that matter to our communities, um, that they need to be addressing issues such as profiling, um, police brutality, criminal justice, uh, civil rights, that they need to be doing that um, in, in a more concerted manner and in a more prompt manner. So um, I do think that that's happening even now. You know, we're seeing some of the Democratic candidates um, who are expressing their concerns with the raids that are happening right now um, focused on Central American children and families, right? So I do think that that sort of call to action is something that we can all be learning from in terms of how to push the candidates to be accountable to us. The book is We Too Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh Immigrants Shape Our Multiracial Future. The book is published by The New Press. And uh, thank you so much, Deepa, for your time. I, I really enjoyed the book. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.